Well, are you one of our regular students for Self-Improvement Wednesday? Each week, you get to learn something new. Your lesson this week, linguistic relativity or the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis. Your teacher is Tiger Webb, the ABC's language specialist. Good afternoon, Tiger. Hello. We're going to get to an intriguing idea in a second, uh, which I'll just put out there because I think it's so it's such an exciting idea, which is that you're, the way you see colour may depend on the language you speak. I mean, we'll get to that in a second, but it's an example of this thing called linguistic relativity. Can you explain us this theory? Because it's quite controversial, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> and it's kind of a, a misleading title. Uh, you said it's sometimes called the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis. Those two never really collaborated. Uh, it was never a sort of universal hypothesis. But it's uh, basically just this idea, linguistic relativity, that... Um, there are things that uh, your language, uh, differences your language forces you to express that may have some kind of effect in the way you think, the way you conceive of the world. That's kind of it in a nutshell. Mm -hmm. A a good example is some people say even the way we think about the world may be related to the language we use. For instance, if we use English, we have a, a different way of expressing certain things than you would in Spanish. Yeah, absolutely. So um, some academics make a distinction between um, what they call, I guess, uh, manner languages, uh, where you'll be forced to kind of describe the manner of motion. uh, And then other languages uh, will be called uh, path languages. So they specify the path. So um, if you wanted to say something like the bottle floated past the rock, Um, In English, you just say the bottle floated past the rock. But what English makes you do there is is specify the floating, the kind of manner of the action. Whereas um, if you were a Spanish speaker, and pardon my mangled Spanish, Richard, it'd be something closer to la botella paso por la piedra flotando, which means like the bottle passed by the rock. You have to add floating in as a kind of separate part of the sentence. Um, And so when they test people, you know, experimenters uh, in a lab, uh, they've kind of found out that when you show uh, English speakers uh, and you ask them to recall details from a video that they've seen um, with a kind of impromptu memory test, they tend to remember more of those uh, manner-relevant details. They tend to remember the bottle floating Mm. or or being still. Uh, And the thinking is that maybe just weakly and maybe just a bit, it's because the language, English, forces them to. Yeah, the, 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 the language we use trains the mind about what's important. Another example might be the way in English we describe time in terms of length. We say things like a long meeting or a short meeting using length to mean duration. Yeah, absolutely. And it's kind of a fun uh, uh, little gag you can have with yourself. Um, you try to describe um, a long meeting without using the word long. It gets very difficult because our concept of time in English is so bound to this idea of, uh, of length or duration uh, or, or sort of spatial uh, dimensions. But so even if I say like... an extended meeting, I'm using a kind of spatial word, aren't I? Exactly. Lengthy, extended, protracted. Um, You can get there. It's it's not sort of impossible to say a meeting went forever. Um, But, you know, it's harder in our language to not default to that kind of spatial representation of time. So not every language uses a spatial metaphor to talk about time, or at least um, not every language preferences one. So um, 
Greek, I think, talks about time in terms of quantity, a bit like how we talk about water. We talk about a lot of time um, where we might say that we had a long night. Um, in Greek, it, it, you, you can say it's a, it's a big night uh, rather than a long <laughs> night. And do you think this would then influence the way we see time? Uh, well, again, I mean, a lot of this stuff, um, the differences where they're observable, they are slight. Um, it's not deterministic. You know, people who speak Greek, uh, you know, aren't going to look at clocks differently to, to English speakers necessarily. Um, but yeah, there, as much as we can observe this kind of linguistic stuff, there are these small differences. Now, some people will say that's meaningless. They don't make a massive deterministic, uh, sort of, uh, uh, I guess, demand on speakers. Other people will say that even these little small differences between Greek and English or Spanish and English uh, or Korean and English are important and, sh- and worthy of study. Mm, and that they, they subtly shape the way that we see the world. Uh, one example is colour. Uh, you know, talk to me about the, the Japanese who might see the sky, the blue sky, and see a Granny Smith apple as developed here in Sydney and see it as the same colour. Yeah, so um, colour is a, is a great example of where um, we all see the same or most of us see the same physical spectrum of colour, but languages divvy up that spectrum very differently. So um, if you're learning Japanese, one of the first colour terms you might learn uh, is ao, uh, A-O, um, and it's usually kind of glossed as like blue, um, and in Japanese, you would say that um, a Granny Smith apple is, is ao, is blue or, or green, uh, and, but also that the sky or the sea is the same colour. Now, you think about that as an, as an English speaker, or I think about that as an English speaker and think the sky, apples, they're never the same colour. But again, it's about uh, what is a meaningful difference for, mm-hmm. uh, for speakers. And this is probably one where um, if you've ever been to Japan or your listeners have been to Japan, um, traffic lights <laughs> in Japan uh, are blue. <laughs> because, again, for the Japanese speaker, blue is more green than it is for the English speaker. Okay, it's a different way of, as you say, divvying up the colour palette. Uh, another example is, is numbers. There are some languages which don't have high numbers. The question, I suppose, is if you're brought up in that culture, are you able to understand big numbers in the same way as cultures which do count big numbers? Yeah, absolutely. So um, when we talk about large exact numbers in a, in a kind of linguistic sense, that's really a number greater than five or six. Um, it's pretty uncommon in the, in the scope of history and in the scope of world languages to have large exact numbers, you know, numbers beyond 10. Um, they're pretty recent and they're pretty rare, um, which is kind of a weird thing to think about because we're so used to them in, in industrialised um, uh, communities and with the languages we speak, we've all found words for them. But, yeah, if you grow up um, in a language that does not have and you, you only speak a language that has maybe a word for one, Richard, and a word for two and then a word for you know, a couple and a, a word for many, um, you may well struggle uh, if, if I put, um, I think the experiment uh, linguists have done here is they put um, uh, nine nuts into a little jar and they took them out one by one and asked the speakers of this language, well, um, can you tell me when you think the jar is empty, when you think I've taken out all nine? Um, and across the board, speakers of languages like Piraha, where there aren't you know, large mm-hmm. exact numbers, um, they could rarely give the correct answer for anything greater than four nuts. So there is this sense that maybe, you know, in some pretty rare circumstances across the world these days, um, your ability to handle this idea of large 
exact numbers can be affected by the language that you speak. Mm. And I wonder, you know, thinking about our own lacks here, we might lack an ability to describe snow as accurately as uh, perhaps someone from uh, uh, what used to be called the Eskimo culture. Well, yeah, I mean, that's kind of the danger with this um, really attractive idea, linguistic relativity, like, you know, your language shapes how you view the world. Um, Often when we have poor data uh, as linguists or as anthropologists, we make false claims. And one of the false claims with very surprising relevance is this idea that, um, you know, the the Inuit Aleutian people of the North American continents um, have 200 words for snow where English only has one. As much as you can meaningfully say this is uh, anything, it's not true. Um, The people, I think, who said this initially didn't really understand how Inuit languages worked. Um, They were looking at like, um, you know how verbs get inflected in English all the time? Do is different from went, is different from doing. They were like, oh, that's three words there. Really, it's one word. So they're counting the words wrong, also kind of counting the English words wrong. I mean, we have sleet, snow, avalanche. We have lots of different types of words for snow, really. Um, And and then I guess when you make these kind of claims, it can be uh, really dangerous to say that um, just because a language lacks a word or, or a grammatical device for something, they can't think about it. Speakers can't conceive. Yeah, yeah. Oh. You, you sometimes hear people say, oh, that culture has no word for, for violence or even, uh, even, you know, there's no word for rape in their language. That means that they think it's fine. That's the implication, isn't it? Absolutely. And it's really, it's one where I think media have a bit of a cross to bear because we love, it's, it's a very sensationalist sort of thing, but it gets a run in media quite a lot, particularly in Australia. Um, and it's just totally untrue and, and logically irrelevant. Um, but yeah, you do sometimes hear, oh, you know, language so-and-so has no word for assault or whatever, or no word for rape. And the fact of the matter is English didn't either. We had to borrow rape from Latin. Originally, it just meant to capture or take. Hence, the rape of the lock is about the theft of someone's mm-hmm. hair, mm-hmm. you know? <laughs> so uh, again, you can take this too far and you can, t- can take it in very murky directions. Um, but yeah, there is something happening here. Yeah. And I guess the good direction is to realise uh, the you know, the rich tapestry of life. And there are these subtle ways in which the language influences the mind. Yeah, absolutely. And I think if you, you, learning a language is one of the only sort of hobbies where being an amateur is is rewarding. (laughs) So if you do go out and you do learn a bit of Korean or Spanish or Piraha or Gamilaray, whatever it is, um, you might find yourself thinking a bit differently. And that I think is to be celebrated. Well, we'll learn our true colours. Hey, uh, Tiger, fantastic lesson. Thank you so much. Thanks, Richard. It's Tiger Webb. Our ABC language expert. You can listen again online at abc.net.au slash sydney. You'll also find details of how to subscribe to the free Self-Improvement Wednesday podcast. Next week, a lesson from Professor Jackie Troy, Director of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Research at the University of Sydney. That's Self-Improvement Wednesday next week. <laughs>